everyone to this beautiful, sunny, warm day in Southern Alberta. Thank you all for being here. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone, and I'm your moderator. The talks will be recorded and available on the SACPA website, and Shaw Spotlight records SACPA presentations and use excerpts from our PowerPoint if available for their daily broadcasts. <clears throat> Please pay $14 for lunch in the bowls at the table <clears throat> or $2 for coffee. Please appoint someone at your table to count the money before SACPA collects the bowls at 12.30. Format of the meeting is from 12 to 12.30. We will have the talk. Then we will have lunch, and following lunch, a question and answer period finishing at 1.30. Today, we will have Dr. James Tagg from the University of Lethbridge, who joined the university in 1969. He received his PhD in history from Wayne State University in Michigan in 1973. For almost 35 years, he taught the sweep of American history. <clears throat> initiated the first Southern Alberta history course and helped establish a program in liberal education at the University of Lethbridge. Dr. Tagg's research interests have been related to the early Republic of the United States, 1789 to 1815, with an emphasis on early American politics and journalism. Currently, Dr. Tagg is working on a kind of anti-biography of Governor Morris, the man who wrote the U.S. Constitution. Giving attention and importance to his grandiose psychological makeup and his sex life. <laughs> Today, Dr. Tagg will elucidate us on the topic, is the ability to shutter government services and declare national emergencies being abused by U.S. presidents? Join with me in welcoming Dr. James Tagg. Thank you very much. It's good to see so many friends here. Um, and I want to start by thanking SACPA for inviting me to speak. And uh, I think it'll become clear as I do speak that uh, SACPA does a service that's critical to our public selves that is not done in many other places in this world. My natural impulse when thinking about the crisis of national governance in the United States is to be filled with moral outrage. It is likely yours as well. After all, the President of the United States, who I described at SACPA just before the 2016 election, as a narcissist and a fascist, we now know also has, is someone who is abysmally ignorant and lazy. In short, he hardly seems to qualify as a functioning member of society, let alone qualify to be president. In the end, however, this talk is about the dangers of moral outrage, of fictive narratives about truth and, and politics, of the meta-narrative of capitalism, which I'll talk about more, and of the hyper-individualism and tribalism we have constructed around our understanding of ourselves and society, particularly in the United States. Um, 
But first, as a way to get into the larger topic of dysfunction in American governments, governance, let me address the topic headlined uh, for this talk, uh, and that is, has Donald Trump the constitutional power to take five to eight billion dollars out of the overall military budget to fund the wall? Will he trample on the constitutional authority of Congress if he does so? And if he takes this approach, will he get away with it? The answer to the first two has the authority to do so, and yes, he will trample on the constitutional authority of Congress. include this uh, so casually uh, in regard to his ability to do such an extraordinary thing. Well, the reason is uh, evident in American history. Andrew Jackson, first of all, in the early 19th century, dependent state in an area that covered part of Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Alabama, 53,000. And by 1827, they had their own constitution, written constitution. were eager to get a hold of Indian lands. This was a controversy in 1832 with a case called Worcester versus Georgia, in which the Supreme Court justices in American history, and Joseph Story, who should have been one of the most famous ones, both decided that, in fact, all Indian nations were independent nations in the United States. Uh, that they could not be dealt with, uh, Georgia or Tennessee or whoever could not deal with them, only the United States government could, and only through treaty, just like any other nation. What happened to this decision? Uh, the apocryphal line that came out of this was, the Supreme Court has made Enforce it. They don't have an army or anything of that sort. So Jackson, what resulted, of course, is something you probably know something about: the Trail of Tears, the movement of the chair. Marched there, four thousand of whom died on the way. Now. things as president, much more radical than Donald Trump is proposing. First of all, extraordinary thing you can do in any legal system. And then in January 1st, 1863, that slaves in areas under rebellion were free. had gotten away already, and it also meant 25 to 75,000 slaves who were uh, under the jurisdiction of the army were to do this? Well, nothing other than an executive order which came under his powers as commander-in-chief of uh, constitutional authority to do this. 
and it wasn't until the 13th Amendment that slavery was abolished. Roosevelt was elected in 1932, as you probably, as you all remember. I'm sure you're afford a huge body of legislation that was immediately declared unconstitutional by the unconstitutional. So when FDR became president for a second time and almost on his own, a couple of other people with him, that what they would do is pack the court, not just the Supreme Court, but to pack lower courts as well. The way they would who was 70 years of age or older and had been on it for 10 years, and they would add an extra kind of to water down the conservative majority in all of these courts. Roosevelt never did um, because uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans were the old Supreme Court changed its mind in its opinion on the New Deal and started to approve <clears throat> one is that if politics and public opinion allow things to happen president uh, has creates three bodies, a judicial body, a legislative one, and states have claimed to have uh, the authority uh, to define what the Constitution is. Definer of that. And so from the get-go, you have a problem with different branches Now, I want to look more broadly at the issue of dysfunction now. Um, a long view, very quickly, and then a view of And uh, there's a, there are a lot of elements to be discussed here, and I just can't possibly do them all. First of all, and divisions among the separate states of the United States is vast. It was from the beginning. In the colonial period, you had have been much different, uh, possibly different in the Western world from the slave South. Total system in operation at the same time. And in Pennsylvania, you had this plan to religious groups along, even though the Quakers actually in Pennsylvania ruled. Today, of course, it's largely a rural agricultural split with and we're very, there are very distinct regional differences in the United States. The functioning of any national government really hard. You also know um, racial differences, 
uh, involving whites and Africans. We also know that there's various tribalisms underneath these uh, different groups. Christianity, for example, which uh, combines with some of these elements to create But the most serious um, problem is the U.S. Constitution. Put into existence. The problem is, first of all, the separation of power. To get a bill through Congress, to get a bill approved by the president and approved by all of the courts that encounter it. There's the problem of delegated powers. Expansive ways and will be used if he indeed goes ahead with a border wall. Uh, the Senate's right to give advice and consent on, the president, uh, on presidential appointments is, after all, was in the beginning and is now the least democratic part of the government. granted the right to initiate revenue bills under the Constitution. Which in this day and age means that as soon as you won your seat in Congress, you'd better start a lot of time for governance. And then there's the issue of elections and representation under not by the federal government. The federal government has intervened at different times. Uh, the right to vote for all people, including freedmen. The 19... And the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which did finally address the issue But there are other problems in this. The president is not uh, every state gets an elector for every member of the House of Representatives and for every senator. Come an absurdity in this day and age. Wyoming has 580,000 people. California has just short of 40 million people. ...1788-89, when the Constitution was brought in. Let me leave it on that. The uh, U.S. Constitution, then, has become as much... ...has been a protection... Uh, for Americans. Most Americans think of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the of course, were brought in after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution because every without some substance to it, and so 
the right to freedom of speech and action. Yet, the U.S. Constitution was the only focal point of the United States. The U.S. Constitution became a kind of secular, sacred text and is still considered to attack, uh, no matter what. And The Constitution is an unread document, uh, and most people don't know what it contains. A broad section of the population would show that uh, I imagine that 10% at most would know what's in it. That the U.S. Constitution did not address in any way parties and the partisan press. The James Madison wrote, written to uh, partly to prevent uh, factions from arising that could being a big republic spread over a large territory would also also discourage Well, Madison was almost entirely wrong. Immediately, a party, not just a faction, began to coalesce around Georgia. In the form of the Federalist Party. And within a few years, Thomas Party coalesced around him and James Madison and James Monroe. The Democratic Republican Party had had different names over the years. It is today's Democratic Party. Now, the Federalists, many of the Federalists, except for Hamilton, uh, God's given truth. So uh, it and others. The partisan press emerges almost the Gazette of the United States in 1789, and he defended all of the Federalist government actions. Uh, Benjamin Franklin Bache began the published a book on in 1991. And uh, Bache was the leading huge campaign against uh, George Washington. He put out a couple of pamphlets. Uh, in terms of telling the truth and telling the facts. But the fact is, probably more radical in their approaches to partisanship than CNN and Fox News. So, 
this engine of American politics, the partisan press and the and uh, political party. Well, when um, one party can dominate elections and implemented, Jackson had a, uh, the opportunity to bring in a lot of bad legislation. of capitalism and social, bring in social security and social um, the wealth is broadly held in the United States either or both parties can, can Republicans and the Democrats were progressives both of them tried to outdo each other in reform Degree, you can say that's what happens after uh, World War II as well. Uh, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy uh, administrations pretty well accepted New Deal changes and created this sense of, of some bipartisanship, at least in what went on. However, when the nation is divided in a vastly partisan way and lacks economic equality, then you have a vicious divisiveness. And you can see this most clearly in the Gilded Age, uh, Mark Twain's phrase for it, from 1870 to 1890, wherein uh, inequality of wealth combined with corrupt politics to create a, a truly horrible period. Henry Adams, uh, historian of the period, said one might search the entire list of Congress, the judiciary, and the executive during the 25 years 1870-1895 and find little but damaged reputations. It's pretty well true, and it's not that much different today. Parties quibbled over small issues, the currency and the tariff. I once took a class at 8 o'clock in the morning in a, in a winter semester on the currency and tariff, 1870-1895. I just want to make clear that I was very dedicated to my <laughs> studies. So today, we are very much like the Gilded Age, a disastrous blend of growing inequality, racism, nativism, corrupt and vicious politics, ineffective presidents, incompetent presidents, two of the worst presidents in American history in the 21st century, and we're only at 2019. American ethnocentrism, which has gotten worse, and the myth of American exceptionalism, which I think has gotten worse as well. Nobody, when I was a kid, chanted USA, USA to everything that happened in front of them. Now, I would like to talk about some proximate causes uh, for what we have as a crisis today. One of those is capitalism. I don't mean capitalism as it operates in its quiet way. Capitalism is a narrative of life, of, of the best means for uh, exchanging goods and services. I mean capitalism as it has become what might be called a meta-narrative, beyond narrative, the overarching umbrella over everything, the thing that cannot be challenged no matter what. It is sac sacrosanct. Uh, John Hickenlooper, who from uh, Colorado is running for the presidency, was on Fox News the other day, and he's the commentator is screaming at him 
Are you a capitalist? Are you a capitalist? I thought he was going to ask him to get down on his knee and pledge that he had joined the Church of Capitalism, because that's what it is. It came that, became that way, starting with Ronald Reagan and supply-side economics, the idea that um, you could, by lowering taxes and doing away with regulations, you could have a wider prosperity. To some degree, that's true. It, this is a debatable issue. <clears throat> but by the, idea, by the 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, by the 1990s, this idea of capitalism being superior uh, was enhanced even further. It was even argued, falsely by some people, that democracy was a consequence of capitalism. It did not precede it, but capitalism brought in democracy and therefore held a prior position. Francis Fukuyama, in a book called The End of History in 1992, proclaimed that liberal democracy and capitalism were the victorious end of history. That is the end of big history, of the overarching systems of history. Everything else would just be playing out uh, little events as we went through our lives. The other problem with capitalism, however, is the corporation. The corpora corporations, as you know, have become even more powerful especially as some regulations have disappeared. People tend to think of corporations as a part of a free market capitalist system, but of course they're not. Corporations rely very heavily upon state support, I mean national support. What we have is state capitalism in the United States. We don't have uh, unfettered capitalism. If we did, Chrysler Corporation would no longer exist, and many banks would have gone under, including many trading houses, as I recall, after the 2008 crash. You only have to have four words, to, too big to fail. Those are the four words that show you that uh, capitalism is actually a state capitalism. Now, the people who have used that phrase, state capitalism, before tended to be communists and socialists. Uh, I think it's always kind of interesting that in regard to capitalism as an ideology. Well, no, as a meta-narrative, you have to bow down to its completeness. But if somebody like Bernie Sanders comes along and says we should have universal health care that is socialist, he becomes entirely a socialist as a consequence of that. Well, that isn't the, <laughs> that isn't the case of how it works. The other big problem in the United States, and it's the problem in Canada too, is that the corporation became a person. This is an odd story, and I don't have time to tell it here. It's a kind of a funny story, almost, uh, if you have a weird sense of humor. But the consequence to that has been that corporations get the full protection of the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. They cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And due process of law may not involve just mere legislation. Um, they have acquired the rights of the First Amendment. And, of course, as you know, most recently, they acquired the right of, um, getting it behind here, uh, the right to spend what they want on political campaigns. In 2002, um, 
John McCain and Russ Feingold brought in a, an act to reform uh, the, the um, funding. Oh, what is this doing? To reform the funding of uh, campaigns, uh, campaign financial reform, which greatly limited corporations and excluded foreign corporations from being involved in American campaigns. It was hailed as a great forward piece of progress. But in 2010, the Supreme Court said no, corporations have the right under the First Amendment of freedom of speech, and as being persons, they have the right of freedom of speech, and they therefore cannot be restrained in what they spend. So now we're in this hopeless morass of national spending in the United States on campaigns, a problem we don't share in Canada. Finally, another big proximate cause of the problem in the United States is what I will call this distension of the idea of individualism. Beginning with do your own thing individualism in the 1960s and 70s, and then being enhanced by the baby boomers, baby boomers who compared to earlier American generations had been lavished with attention and advantages as youth. They felt entitled in many ways, including entitled to avoid the draft during Vietnam, to be, pro uh, to be prosperous, to lead comfortable lives, economic lives, in fact, to lead hedonistic lives. By the 1980s, this biggest demographic group promoting acquisitiveness, signed on willingly to the greed is good culture of the 1980s. And they meshed nicely with this new idea of meta and narrative idea of capitalism. In fact, I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday in a grocery store and he said, uh, he said, well, it's really a pathology and that's what it is. It's a pathology of individualism. It isn't the individualism of right to uh, speak freely and, and pursue an occupation and all of the things we as usually associate it with it. Instead, it has become this, this uh, sensibility of self alone. By the night, by the, in the old days, let's say the old days, <laughs> the mid-20th century, people would identify themselves by the job they did, uh, the church they went to perhaps, um, and big uh, elements of that sort. By 2000, if you look at people and, and how they identify themselves, they're as likely to identify themselves by what sports teams they support, what hobbies they pursue, what leisure uh, activities they like to undertake, rather than serious matters of governance uh, or justice or care for the planet. So people have clung to the preciousness of this personal individuality. But that individuality was now more trivial and less connected to a world beyond the psychological self. Well, just look at the increase in publication of self-help books from, say, the late 20th century to today. And then compare that to the number of books that you've read or seen on shelves that have to do with public responsibility, furthering the public good, becoming a better society. And you all know the, I, it may be apocryphal, the comment by Margaret Thatcher that there is no society, there is only family. 
that became more, more the mantra, I think, of the, of the uh, uh, boomers at their worst, I should say. There were good things they did too. So, in summary, um, the ideology of unrestrained capitalism uh, reduced the ability of the federal government to pursue the public good. The public good, the common good, whatever you want to call it, are phrases you do not hear anymore at all. Despite the fact that the public good uh, arose out of Supreme Court cases in the 1870s, 1877, Munn v. Illinois, the Supreme Court says that businesses invested with a public interest, like railroads, for example, are subject to public regulation. Well, if you said that before a Republican Congress today, they would claim that you're a communist. This was by a very right-wing court that made this decision, decision at that time. So, unrestrained capitalism, and then we have this Rube Goldberg machine called the U.S. Constitution, something that clearly does not work. My, my man, Benjamin Bache, said in 1793 already, I think he said, let's get rid of the Constitution, write something else. That didn't go very big when all of, the writer, all of those who had written the Constitution were still alive. Um, this uh, problem is exacerbated further, I should say, by attacks on bureaucracies. All government is bad. Government is the problem, the mantra of this group. Uh, my good friend Ron Yoshida gave me this book recently by Michael Lewis, The Fifth Risk, in which he talks about three departments of the government today in the United States, energy, commerce, and like Rick Perry, I can't remember the third, uh, agriculture. And uh, in this, he shows the critical work that bureaucracies do and how dedicated members of these bureaucracies are and the fantastic things they, they provide to society. But you wouldn't think so if you listen to politicians who are always after them. The other thing that's happened, partly because of this kind of boomer sensibility of individuality, is that the electorate has become willingly trivialized. Before I knew I was going to give this talk, in early January, I think, I reread this book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, written in 1995, in which he goes into a kind of a Rick Mercer screed uh, against uh, television and how people have uh, just given up on serious consideration of topics and have watched TV infotainment now is what we call it, infotainment. Pretty girls, pretty boys, get jobs reading the news in front of a TV camera, don't know anything about journalism at all. Pundits are brought in to replace journalists that scream at each other on television screens. Uh, and journalism, of course, naturally turns vicious because that's a very good way of getting things done. Are we there yet? Yeah, we're the, um, this has become so bad that there's an um, article I'd recommend you look at by Thomas Edsel, written last week, called No Hate Left Behind. During the question period, maybe I'll just uh, open it by mentioning some statistics that he brings forward on the subject. 
Thank you very much.